0: Hi, I'm Matthew from PanicAttackRecovery.com. We're a collaboration of former sufferers who are helping current sufferers of anxiety, panic attacks, and agoraphobia. We want to share what we know works. Now, while our information is designed for those suffering from anxiety, panic attacks, and agoraphobia, anyone can benefit from it. I want to first explain how you can make sure that you are not missing out on any of our content. I would encourage you to visit our website, sign up for our free newsletter, and get access to a massive amount of helpful content. Please visit our website at panicattackrecovery.com. Anxiety and even panic attacks can at times coexist with conditions such as ADHD, learning disabilities, challenges, and depression. The strategies I will share in this podcast can help with all of these conditions, either as a standalone condition or whether they coexist for you or for others. You see, many people feel anxious in life about how they measure up in relation to others. Or when they're trying to perform tasks, they constantly worry about their ability to do so. And that's what I want to talk about today. Now this can happen at any stage in a person's life, but it likely starts in childhood for most of us. Many people this time of year feel stressed about their school or university performance or have children who have begun academic life. Parents might reflect back on their own time in school and vicariously feel the stress on behalf of their children. It may be that you had some difficulties in school and you start to recall those when your child goes to school or university, you're going to parent-teacher interviews, whatnot. Or it could be that you know that your child may be struggling and when you're going to the school or you're thinking about academic life on behalf of your child, you feel your stress and anxiety increase. Now, what often can make this worse is when students and others might have had psychoeducational testing or academic difficulties in their academic life that have shaped their view of their own cognitive ability. So, again, whether it's you. Who are experiencing this as a student, as an adult with difficulties, or whether it's your child, this again can be a source of stress for you and for your children. Now, let me just explain a little bit more here. You see, it's one thing if you take the view that you can accomplish what you put your mind to when you make the effort, but there have been a great number of people whose early life experiences have given them the notion that they cannot do much academically, or they lack the cognitive abilities to accomplish much in life because their abilities or the deficiencies they have are low in this area. Now, let me be very clear what I'm saying here and what I'm not saying. I'm not criticizing psychoeducational assessments. It's critical to understand if one is having difficulty for sure. But what I'm saying is, sometimes the takeaway message for parents and children who have undergone a psychoeducational assessment may be the view that they are very limited, or their child is very limited as a result of the assessment results, and therefore there's a conclusion automatically, well, because of these learning challenges, my child or I myself am not going to be able to do great things in life. So, I really have to set the bar quite low in terms of what I can expect to accomplish. Now, it's really important to have a psychoeducational assessment, as I said, to, to identify difficulties. But what happens sometimes is that what I've just said, this notion is where people stop. They say, okay, finally I figured out what's wrong with my child or myself. There's a learning challenge, there's a reading challenge, there's a challenge with math, maybe IQ. You know, one of the things that happens especially nowadays, is educational assessments have become very advanced, so people have a lot of information at a very early a- age of their child or themselves if they're undergoing this because there's uh, a lot of information in those reports. And people read those reports and they sometimes look at IQ and they say, well, there we go, the IQ is low or it's average, it's low average, so can't expect much um, in that area. And there is research to talk, that talks about IQ that people have looked at and it doesn't sound very promising when you look at just based on IQ, but that's why I wanna talk about more today about what do you do once you get a diagnosis, and, or there's a deficiency noted, or maybe the IQ isn't where you'd like it to be. And the context here is that this is a, often a condition, a learning challenge can be a condition that's uh, coexisting with anxiety and panic attacks. But the strategies I'm about to share will not just be restricted to learning challenges, but everything globally. So as I said, the problem is you get a diagnosis or your child does and you say, well, there we go. We figured out what it is. He's just pouring this. But you'll notice that a good assessment will provide a list of recommendations for your child and for yourself, what you can do to support your child. And often though, unfortunately, what happens is in the school system, there is a lack of resources or time and a lack of personnel. And it's very difficult for those recommendations that are in the psychoeducational report to get fully implemented. So they do, will do their best in the school. Generally, I would say that's a fair statement, but they may not be able to integrate all of those recommendations in the school. And often too, a lot of those recommendations and reports and I have friends and I've seen these reports myself, uh, they've been shared with me. They sometimes um, are very general sort of route recommendations that get repetitively recommended. But in terms of tailoring solutions, um, these are more general recommendations sometimes. So there there can be a variety of these general recommendations. There might be forty recommendations in a report, but a lot of them could be you know examining resources, extra help, etc., and strategies in the classroom. And people will get overwhelmed when they read this. But truly, that's the key. The key is looking at what can be done when there's a diagnosis and not stopping at the diagnosis. And I've heard people, psychologists, have discussed the fact that, okay, it's, it's one thing to identify that there's a, a learning problem, but it, the key is what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to help it? And that's what I'm talking about today. The focus is on what you can do to work with a learning challenge. And I think what I'm going to share with you is going to be quite interesting. So, as I said, there's a psychoeducational assessment or what not has been done, there's uh, some challenges noted, there's some recommendations made in general, but there are things that you as an individual really have to do and has to happen at home to support this. One wouldn't want to rely on the school, for example, to be the only intervention that helps a child who has a problem or an adult who has problems with uh, daily living. So, there are things that you can do on your own, and that's um, what I want to talk about right now. For example, there are personality characteristics that can serve you and anyone who has difficulties. One would be conscientiousness. Are you a conscientious person? And um, being conscientious can really help you to do your best when you're doing things and not simply just say, Well, I'm not going to bother trying now because I have problems, but you're still conscientious and you're doing your best. That's key. And a lot of these things aren't new, but they are things that people don't think about in the context of challenges. And why I talk about them is that I think they're more important when one identifies challenges than they would be in general when you're just talking about doing your best and you're not talking about any learning challenges or other challenges in life. The second, uh, personality characteristic would be creativity. Um, often people can be very creative even though they may have learning challenges. So that's something that can absolutely be very helpful for one. And, uh, it can be an activity that you can engage in on your own terms. You can do creative tasks that you enjoy, but it can also be an area where someone can shine who may have learning challenges. Another uh, characteristic would be persistence. And persisting at things is very helpful, especially if things are difficult for you and you can push through anyway. And not only are you doing your best, but you're forcing yourself sometimes because you know in the long run that persistence is key. And persistence will be very helpful in doing the right things. That can be helpful for a learning challenge. And there are supports you can build into your routine on a regular basis. As I said, things can be put in place in school. There can be accommodations and adaptations in school and in the workplace. When we're talking about adults, you can do things in your environment that may work very well for you, uh, with your style. And that allows you to do much better than, uh, not being sensitive to the environment, the work environment. And there are strategies that you can learn by doing your own personal research in the area but also learning from others who have struggled with similar challenges. There are activities that you can do to help and they may suggest to you and you'll find on your own. So you need to be a lifelong learner on strategies that you can use to help yourself in the areas where you have strengths and to work on those areas, especially. And there's nothing wrong or ashamed that you should be ashamed about when it comes to using strategies and activities. It isn't that you have to do things the way everyone else does them. It may be that there are strategies you can use that would be very helpful. It would be sort of, in a way, if there's a challenge identified, it would be like saying to a diabetic, well, um, just, uh, just keep eating like everyone else does and don't do anything else and your diabetes will that's the best you can do. And of course, there are things that can be done. There can be medication, there can be insulin, there can be dietary interventions, etc. But knowing what's appropriate is going to be something the individual goes through and works with, with a healthcare provider, but it isn't wishful thinking. It isn't just simply saying, well, I have diabetes, there's nothing to do about it. But my point is there's nothing to be ashamed about. If you have diabetes, it isn't something that you created yourself and nor would this be the case with learning challenges and also with a condition such as depression or anxiety. There is a component that has come to you and in your life through biology and through other ways that we, we simply are different as individuals, but they're not things that you created yourself. So there's, there's nothing to be ashamed about and expanding on this. I, I really want to expand on this because what if I told you that you could level the playing field for success and health, more than your own iq or your family status related to income education and occupation i will discuss some research in this area but i think it's quite exciting because this is a global strategy i'm going to talk about and again it's not one specifically meant for learning challenges depression anxiety but it can help with all of these things what i'm talking about is the idea of cognitive control cognitive control Or another word would be mindfulness. It's something that we talked about here at panic attack recovery to a certain extent in a previous video, but not to the extent and in the full context, like I'm doing in this podcast, the simplest way to think of mindfulness is to think that it refers to paying attention to what is happening in the the present moment, anxiety sufferers and others at times find themselves so immersed in their own thoughts. That they are not likely paying attention to the present moment. The relationship between the lack of mindfulness and anxiety works like this your thoughts can sort of run on autopilot at the expense of your not attending to other things. Now, interestingly, paying attention to these things can break the flow of anxious thoughts if you are to attend to them. So, when I talk about paying attention to these things, paying attention to the present moment rather than being in your head often can break the flow of anxious thoughts. Learning this concept can allow you to avoid missing out on all of the wonderful things that the present moment has to offer. Better yet, you can do so in two simple steps. Number one, by choosing to focus your attention on the present moment, and really making a commitment in this regard. Number two, and this is the most important step, bringing your attention back to the moment when it begins to drift. You might be wondering, what does the evidence say about mindfulness or cognitive control? Authors of a study published in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology conducted a literature search of 39 studies, totaling 1140 participants. The participants were receiving mindfulness-based therapy for a range of conditions, including cancer, generalized anxiety disorder, depression, and other psychiatric or medical conditions. The authors concluded, these results suggest that mindfulness-based therapy is a promising intervention for treating anxiety and mood problems in clinical populations. Dr. Daniel Goleman, in his video on FOCUS, The Secret to High Performance and Fulfillment, discusses the power of mindfulness, which he refers to as cognitive control. In particular, Dr. Goleman discussed a longitudinal study in New Zealand that looked at cognitive control. The results of that study revealed that, and I'm quoting, cognitive control was a better predictor of financial success and health later in life than the subject's IQ or socioeconomic status of their family. That's quite a powerful finding. Again, I'm just going to repeat that for you. Cognitive control, the ability to focus on the present moment, is what cognitive control means, was a better predictor of financial success and health later in life than the subject's IQ or socioeconomic status of their family. The researchers in charge of this study argued we should be teaching cognitive control skills to children in order to level the playing field. Dr. Goleman also discusses research from Dr. Richard Davidson, a renowned neuroscientist. Dr. Davidson discusses that when we are agitated, there is a lot of activity in the right side of the brain, and the amygdala, the triage point for fight-or-flight response related to anxiety, can be affected. When we are in a positive state, there is a lot of activity in the left side, and really no activity in the right. So depending on the situation, the activity on the side of the brain can change. Dr. Davidson paired up with Dr. John Kabat-Zinn in order to address chronic conditions in the workplace. Researchers were hired by a company to teach their employees mindfulness. When taught mindfulness over a period of eight weeks, researchers found that employees' brains were tilting to the left, and they were once again remembering what they loved about their job. Again, if you recall the um, information from Dr. Richard Davidson, the neuroscientist, he talked about when we were agitated, there's a lot of activity in the right. And when we're in a positive state, there's a lot of activity in the left. And that's what they found here. So recognizing the benefits of mindfulness, more businesses are bringing it, bringing mindfulness training into the workplace. Now, these are pretty powerful findings and indications about the benefits of mindfulness and cognitive control. Dr. Goleman also indicates that attention is like a muscle, and we have to exercise it in order to improve it, just like going to the gym to exercise your muscles. Attention can be strengthened by practicing the two steps we shared earlier in this video on a regular basis, and that's what's really key about this information. When we talk about cognitive control and mindfulness, and it's like any strategies to help you with your academic life or your anxiety or your focus as an adult in the workplace. This is something that has to be done on a regular basis like exercise. It's not going to be particularly useful if you do it once or twice and you try to gauge how you feel after that and, and judge whether it's effective. So in other words, you have to do this in the long term, and the, the rewards can be huge as the research indicates, if you do this on a regular basis. But if you conclude on after a couple of attempts that it doesn't work, it isn't a very good basis to make any conclusion, but that's often what people do with a, with a novel idea like this. Novel idea in the sense that novel for you to try it. I'm sure you've heard about mindfulness before to a certain extent, but again, never really thought about its power and thought, well, it just might make me focus better, but that really isn't going to change my life. But the research actually says that it can. Now, Dr. Goldman stresses that if you find your mind is somewhere else, bring it back again and gently restart. So the key really is not so much to prevent your mind from wandering in the first place, but to notice when your mind wanders and simply bring it back again. Dr. Goleman states that's what strengthens the connectivity in the attention circuitry of our brain. So in other words, it's if you've heard of the concept of neuroplasticity, And the fact that the brain can change and we can form new habits where we're strengthening new habits in mindfulness in the attention circuitry of the brain that will allow you to strengthen your attention over time and become much better at managing it at will. If you find yourself, here's an example, going through the day, there are many distractions, as we all know, sometimes you, you, you're literally taken by the nose when it comes to those distractions. You don't even realize your attention is gone. But by having mindfulness, you become very focused and you can really help yourself in your work and academic life in many ways because you're utilizing the resources you have, the capacity you have, by focusing it on what you really want to be focused on. The problem if you're not is that, let's say that somebody does have a challenge with learning in a certain area, a learning challenge in a certain area. Well, what will happen is that their system is even more taxed when they're trying to do this. And if they're not mindful and they're, and they're distracted, it takes them even longer to do things. So it makes it even more difficult. But what's really exciting about this is you can form a new habit to be mindful and you can really benefit yourself. And we've quoted research here. And you can. I would encourage you to do your own research in the area of mindfulness and cognitive control. There is so much information out there. This is an area where we can really improve our lives. And this can be anyone that can improve their lives by practicing mindfulness on a regular basis. Not only will it help with anxiety, but it will improve our cognitive control by exercising our attention to focus on one thing and then bringing our attention back when it wanders. Remember the implications of the research findings. Developing a new habit in this practice can increase our chances of financial success and health more than IQ or our family's status related to income, education, and occupation. Mindfulness is a great technique to keep in mind for many children and students who have returned to school this time of year. I would encourage all of you to research more about meditation. There are so many easy meditation techniques out there. You don't have to spend a long time practicing meditation, but this is a great way to get used to the concept of mindfulness when you can just take some time out of the day to relax and do meditation become mindful of your thoughts when you're in a state of um, relaxation and just being mindful, breathing exercises, what have you. I wouldn't worry so much on the technique right now, but you can give that a try as well. So not only being mindful during the day when you're working on tasks can help you, but taking a break and learning meditation for a short period of time during the day can be another way to increase your mindfulness and your cognitive control. So I hope that this has been a helpful podcast and listeners realize the implications from this is not just about anxiety, panic attacks, but for people who have learning challenges, depression, and other cognitive uh, challenges. This is something that I would encourage everyone to practice on a regular basis. I would encourage you to visit our website, sign up for our free newsletter and get access to a massive amount of helpful content please visit our website at panicattackrecovery.com. All information presented in these podcasts is provided for educational and informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for a psychologist, psychiatrist, or other healthcare providers consultation. Please consult a psychologist, psychiatrist, or appropriate health care provider about the applicability of any opinions or recommendations with respect to your own panic attacks, anxiety, or agoraphobia, or any other symptom or condition.